All right, uh, we are here in uh, Luke chapter 3, and as we begin, we need to remind ourselves about why Luke, not one of the original apostles, but a later disciple, associate of the Apostle Paul, why he wrote this gospel, the gospel according to Luke. We are reminded in the first few verses, I I hope you remember, that Luke, and and this is distinct for the Gospels, identifies his particular audience. Uh, Of course, he didn't mean it for this one individual only. He meant it for every reader. But he was writing so that this individual, this Gentile, probably a a high-ranking official, would be certain, to use Luke's phrasing, of the things that had been accomplished, Luke says, among us. He wanted Theophilus to be certain of the things that had been accomplished among us. Things, Luke says, that Theophilus has already been taught. And so it's very important in in launching this letter from the get-go that Luke lay down some historical markers. Because these things that Luke writes do not fall into the category of myth or legend, or speculation even. Luke is writing concerning historic fact of what God in space, time, history accomplished upon this planet. And so sometimes we we have this feeling because these things are so far removed from our historical context that they are otherworldly and... uh, perhaps that take on in our minds, even if we don't mean for this to happen, a a mythical quality. And we must guard against that. So when Luke writes, beginning in the third chapter, it's the third time he has laid down one of these historical markers. Let's read these verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Tiberius Caesar had come to power in the year A.D. 14, after Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, had died. So the 15th year of his reign, depending on how they marked it exactly, would fall in A.D. 28 or 29. Now, of course, this is happening in Rome. On the other side of the Mediterranean Sea in the east, after Herod the Great had died in the year 4 B.C., his kingdom, this is how Herod the Great had designated uh, designated his will, his kingdom was parsed to his three sons. There was Herod Archelaus in the south, including the province of Judea. He became ethnarch of that region. An ethnarch is someone who rules over half of a kingdom. The other two parts, the other fourths, were designated to Herod Antipas in Galilee, on the the west side of the Jordan River, and then also to Herod Philip II on the east side of the Jordan River, called the the Transjordan. Now, Herod Archelaus was deposed pretty early on in his reign. And it's not because he was 
um, filled with cruelty like his father Herod the Great was. That's not why Caesar Augustus banished him to Gaul, which is modern-day France in AD 6. It was because Herod Archelaus was incompetent. And that note is important because if you look through this, you know, there's a tetrarch of Galilee and a, a tetrarch on the other side of the Jordan, and there's tetrarchs here and there, but there's no tetrarch or ethnarch, as the case may be. And I said ethnarch is someone who rules over half of a kingdom. A tetrarch is someone who rules over a fourth of a kingdom. But there's no one like that in Judea. Because after Herod Archelaus was banished to Gaul, the, for the next uh, few decades, this area of Palestine was ruled by a string of governors. And so in the mid-20s through the mid-30s, the person who ruled Judea, this was ruled by the man Pontius Pilate. And I've already mentioned Herod Antipas in the north and also Herod Philip II. So those were the political rulers. On the religious side was Caiaphas. He was the high priest, and he was the son-in-law of Annas. Annas had been deposed 15 years before this, but he still continued to wield a lot of influence over the priesthood. So when we look over the, the list of these individuals, you know, some of them are, are more memorable to history than others. But each one of them, thought themselves the sovereigns over their respective domain. And they would not tolerate anybody who threatened to destabilize their domain. What Luke is very specifically locating in history, the Bible also calls the fullness of time. The fullness of God's time. It was the fullness of time for the salvation of the people of God. And... At the same time, given the political landscape and the religious landscape, uh, given who was in charge in those areas, it was also going to be time, the time was ripe, for anybody who was a faithful preacher to pay a very steep price. And that's what we see in this one that we now know today as John the Baptist. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why did God send John? Why did God send John? The answer comes in verses 4 to 6. John's ministry was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Luke says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. These days, when we want to, as a society, welcome dignitaries and, and celebrities, what do we do? We roll out the red carpet. We give them the red carpet treatment, as we say. But in the ancient world, at times, for great kings, they didn't get red carpets. They got highways. 
Sometimes cities, in order to welcome kings, would actually go out and they would level the ground, make sure the ground was level all the way to the city gate. They would build a road to clear the way for the king to come in. So, using this analogy, Isaiah is prophesying, and and in John's ministry, this is fulfilled that Israel welcomes their Messiah. How can they welcome the king of glory to the nation? It's not by building or mending roads. It's by mending their hearts. It's not by building roads. Mending roads. It's by mending their hearts. Repentance clears the obstructions for the coming of Christ. Repentance clears the obstructions for the coming of Christ. So all along the Jordan River, John was preaching this message to the masses. To quote from Matthew chapter 3 verse 2, this was John's message. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we're going to go further in the text, but I want to sum up the message and the ministry of John the Baptist. This is what he first required of all those who came to him. First, he required repentance. And second, he required that every person, he commanded on God's behalf that every person bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's an exact quote. We'll get to it in a moment. So repent. Everyone must repent in order for the king of glory to come in and bear fruit as a demonstration of the repentance in keeping with it. So what was necessary for the spiritual life of the nation to welcome the Lord of glory in remains necessary for every single individual today. It wasn't just for John's day. It wasn't just for the first century. It is also for us. And not only for us, but for all the world. For every time and place. As long as we are on this side of glory, this is required of every person. That we repent of our sin and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. This is what's required. To draw from Isaiah 40 and Luke's quote. The valleys must be filled in our lives. The mountains and the hills in our lives must be made low. The crooked things in our hearts must be made straight. And the rough places must become level ways. And all of this is required in order for the individual soul to see the salvation of God. Going back to the, to the, to verse six, it says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But not only John's message was, not only is that true for the nation at large, but that is true for every individual soul. The valleys must be filled, the mountains and hills made low, the crooked must become straight, the rough places become level ways. How can the Lord of glory come in to save? How can he come in? It is our tendency when the word of God rebukes us, whether we are reading or whether we're hearing the word of God preached or taught or what have you, our tendency is to go into denial mode. I want you to imagine, picture for a moment, your spiritual life as a landscape in front of you, okay? Your whole spiritual life, a panoramic landscape before you. 
Bible says that you have mountains there, and you have hills, and you have valleys. There are hills of pride and valleys of self-pity. There are pools of various lusts and so on. And the word of God says that all of these things are obstructions to the Lord of glory coming into our lives. Our tendency is to say, when the Bible points them out, is to say, what are you talking about? I don't see anything. It looks like smooth sailing to me. Everything is fine. Or, if we don't outright deny that these things are present in our hearts, we defend them. We defend their existence. We even justify them. We give reasons for these things. Or we even say that what the Bible calls evil is good. So the answer to this is to repent. Stop denying the existence of the obstructions to Christ that are in our hearts. And stop defending them. What must you repent of for the Lord of glory to save, to come in and to save and to abide in your heart? What must you repent of? What hills of pride, valleys of self-pity, pools of lust, and of course, that is by no means exhaustive. We could keep on drawing analogies from landscapes in general to the spiritual sins and shortcomings of our hearts, right? What must you repent of for the Lord of glory to come in? We must confess. We must turn from our sin. And we must abandon our defense of these things. Are there sins, are there hills that you're maintaining? Valleys that you maintain? Are there hills that you are standing atop of defending? Is there anything like that? We must repent. Stop our denial. Confess they are true and abandon their defense. Now, it is so often, this is just so natural for us. This is our nature. And because it's our nature, it's, it's our inclination. Um, it's like that we have such a difficult time to say, this is true of me. The Bible is pinpointing me. This is my guilt, truly. We're, we're, our tendency is to say, I'm exempt. I'm the exception to the rule. Yes, God requires that I live like this, but not here and not now. I'm the exception to the rule that he has given. Do you find this tendency in your heart? John could spot it plainly in the hearts as a prophet with prophetic insight in the hearts of those who came to him. When people gather in the church, when people gathered in John's day to hear his preaching, it it was not the case that every single person that came, came because they were swept along, swept up in the blowing breath wind of the Holy Spirit. Some were just swept up with the crowd. And on Sunday morning, All across America, it is true that there are many who gather in the church who are not being swept up by the Holy Spirit. They're just being swept up by the crowd 
or they're being swept up by tradition, or they're swept up by this concern to save face because they are afraid of what others might think of them if they're not in church, if they're not hearing the word of God. And so John could see this. Let's read verses 7 to 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, this is not holding back, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, not everybody was a phony, and John certainly was targeting the phonies, but he spoke this to all. Bear fruits, he said, in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hard message. John said, you brood of vipers. He was calling them, in other terminology, you sons of snakes. Jesus, in John 8, would also call certain Jews who came to him children of the devil. And the reason that this was spoken in both instances was because the guilt was the same. Look at what he says. He says, do not begin to say to yourselves, and like what we would say, don't even think about it. What aren't they even to think about? We have Abraham as our father, so any judgment that the God of Abraham threatens, we are naturally, biologically, exempt from. We're exempt. And John said to them, and that's the same thing that was happening in John 8, when Jesus was calling certain Jews children of the devil. They were saying, we're children of Abraham. Jesus said, wrong, you're children of the devil. They didn't hold back. They didn't smooth over, gloss over what is true and what must be heard and what must be believed. We are not exempt from the rule of God. It is frustratingly hard. I can tell you from Scripture, you know from Scripture, and you probably, like me, you know from personal experience that it is frustratingly hard to get people to repent of their sin. In fact, we know from the Word of God, and again by our own experience, that it is beyond our human capacity to get people to repent. It is impossible for us to convict anyone of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's impossible. Why is it so hard for people to repent? I think if we ask a more even specific question, we'll get to the answer. Why is it so hard, particularly for the religious, as these Jews were, to repent? You know, they thought that repentance was for somebody else, like those Gentiles, those uncircumcised Philistines. They need to repent, but certainly not us. Or maybe, you know, the practicing Jews would look down on the non-practicing Jews, like the Pharisee looking down at the tax collector, and he says, I don't need to repent. He needs to repent. I thank you, God, that I am not like him, right? 
Why is it so hard for the religious to repent? Because they have this presumption that they don't need it. That it's not required of them. That they are the exception to God's rule. And I I want to ask you, very pinpoint, do you? Do you think that you are the exception to the rule of God? Do you think that you are exempt from God's judgment? Have you made this your own? It's not just true of the Jews that they thought that they inherited salvation biologically through their relationship with Abraham, the father of their faith. It's also true of many young people and adults too in the Bible Belt that we think we have inherited this from our forefathers. This is our culture. This is our tradition. This is just what we do. My parents are godly. I've always participated in the church. So it's true for me. I have this already. It's my birthright. Have you made this your own? Have you personally obeyed the command of God to repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? Have you cried out in faith to Christ, my Lord and my God, save me? Have you turned to God yourself? And with that, are you bearing the fruit that's in keeping with repentance? Because repentance is an inward and unseen reality in our hearts, there must be outward demonstrable signs. There must be evidence. Again, repentance is inward, it's hidden, it's unseen. And so there must be visible signs of its presence. If there's no fruit, in other words, to pick up on John's analogy in verses 9 and 10, if there's no fruit, there's no root. If there's no signs of repentance, then the root, the repentance, is not there. And neither is the forgiveness. So what are the signs of repentance? We're just going to talk about two, like John does. Baptism was the first sign of repentance that John required of those people who heard him. And although um, the baptism that we practice in the church today in obedience to Jesus is much different from the baptism that John required, the principle is still the same. Baptism is an outward sign of the inward reality of a repentant heart. The second sign that John gives and we're, gonna, we're going to look at this in a moment, is good works. Now, we do need to be careful here because it's possible that we might confuse the requirements of repentance with the results of repentance. And we must not make that mistake. And it's an easy one to make. But baptism is not repentance. And good works is not repentance. Neither one of them qualify as repentance. What is it? What is repentance? Literally, the word means a change of mind. That's the literal meaning. The biblical message also adds to it that it's not only a change of mind, but it's a change of heart. And it's a turning away from our sin to God. So it's a change of 
mind, and heart, turning from sin unto God. So what does God require for forgiveness? What does God require for forgiveness? Repentance. That's what he requires. And this will result in a single step of baptism and many sacrifices of good works. Let's keep those distinctions clear. Now, those who are truly repentant are going to be eager for righteousness. The Bible is plain on this. Those who have turned to God are going to desire to live unto God. And so the repentant amongst the crowd that John was addressing came to him with questions. Look at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? John, you tell us, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, so let's get specific. Let's get practical. What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. The question is, and this is the cry, this is the prayer of every repentant heart. Now, Lord, what do you require of me? Now that I have turned my life to you and want to live unto you, what do you require? And if we will take John's three answers and sum them up, we get love. That's what God requires of his people above all else, is that we love him. We love him and we love our neighbor. Now, as we look at these things, we see that John mentions really three basic necessities to our lives. He mentions clothing, he mentions food, and he mentions money. All of which we need to to carry on with life, to carry on with health. John says, as the sacrifice of love, we must lay these things down. Now, it's a principle, it's a truth in the word of God that we have the right to own We have the right to personal property. If that wasn't true, the Lord never would have said in the Old Testament, thou shalt not steal, what? Your neighbor's personal property. Don't steal what's not yours. So we have the right to personal property. But there is a higher truth than that. There is a higher truth than you have the right to own. And it's this. For the people of God, you are not your own. You have the right to own, but you are not your own. I don't think we need to be reminded very often that we have the right to own, especially living in this country. We rather, especially those who tend to be a little more conservative, insist upon it. I guess it really would only be the the furthest to the left, liberally speaking, who might be willing to give this up. But most of us will say, yes, absolutely, we have the right to own. We don't need to be reminded of that very often. But I think very often we need to be stirred up by way of reminder that we are not our own. Which means that the things that are our own do not first and foremost belong to you and to me. They belong to God. I and mine belong to God. You 
and yours belong to God. We and ours belong to God. We belong to God. And as a consequence, a result of our repentance toward God, the desire to live unto him, we will lay down for the sake and the good of others what is our own. We're managers. More than we are owners, we're managers and stewards of what God has given to us. Because we and ours are first and foremost his, we must be willing to lay down these things. God, save us from being consumers first and not givers. God, save us from that. We are givers first of all. And the word requires that we lay down our lives. In Luke 6, Jesus will say much the same as John did. He says, each tree is known by its fruit. Please, do not exempt yourself. Fight that tendency in your heart. If you feel that, fight it off. Each tree is known by its fruit. When I was a kid, we had an apple tree in our backyard. And I didn't eat from it very often now and again, when the apples were kind of early, because we didn't spray it. So I was afraid of bugs. And when I was a little kid, there was an older kid visiting our house one time that told me that worms would would come out of the apples and bite me. And I believed him. So I was kind of afraid to, to get into the apples. But I knew that this tree that we had in our backyard was an apple tree and not a birch tree, like was we had three of them right next to the apple tree. Not like a willow tree. It wasn't, it wasn't a maple tree. How did I know? Because it had apples on it. I know, ingenious. Each tree is known by its fruit. How can you tell a repentant person? How can you test for repentance in your own heart? How can you tell a life that has turned to God? He lives unto God. He is turned under God, uh, unto God, I can see, because he lives unto God. She lives unto God. Each tree is known by its fruit. Where there is the root of repentance, there will be the fruit of righteousness and good works summed up and required above all in love. How can you tell a repentant person? With their mouths they confess the Lord and with their lives above all other things they love. So Jesus says in Matthew 7, every tree, this is just what John says as well, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you hear this? When he says every tree, he doesn't mean just about every tree. He means every tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, you're not exempt from the command of God, and I'm not exempt from the command of God to repent, and neither are you exempt from the command to bear those fruits in keeping with repentance. That is a life lived unto God in love. So when you hear the word of God, let me, let me, let's test ourselves, okay? When you hear the command of Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. 
Do you receive that commandment as the non-negotiable command of your Lord? Do you? Jesus will say in another place in Luke, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Hebrews says, if you do not strive for holiness, you will not see the Lord. And there are no exceptions. Every tree, Jesus says. Fathers, you're not exempt. Mothers, you're not exempt. Fathers and mothers, your babies. We may not want to hear, are not exempt. Youth, you are not exempt from this truth. Now, this message is uncommon, I think, in the church today, by and large, because it's unpleasant and because it's hard, but it's the plain word of God. If, if Jesus says it so plainly and we're not willing to say it, if we refuse it and don't want to believe it and definitely refuse to say it, how well are we following Jesus? Jesus said, you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. That doesn't make sense. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ, follow him. So this message, again, it's uncommon in the church today, but it is by no means uncommon in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. James said, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And Jesus again said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This was the message of John, the message of Christ, the message of Paul, James, Peter, John the Apostle. This is the message of the Word of God. Now, when the crowds heard this message, they realized that they were hearing something that the nation had not heard for a long time. Because if you go back into Israel's history, from the 11th century with Samuel, all the way down to the 5th century with Malachi, Israel had always had prophets. Men that God called, and women also at times prophetesses, it's a hard word to say, um, to be his mouthpiece, to deliver his message to the nation. From the 11th century to the 5th, they had prophets. There was rarely a, a gap in, you know, in that time where there was no prophet. But then after Malachi, silence. From about 450 BC all the way down to here in the first years of the first century, silence from heaven. And then the word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness and he began to preach. And when the crowds heard this message, they thought, has he come? Has the promised one, the Christ, finally come? Is John our salvation? Let's read it in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Hmm, it's kind of interesting. Especially, I'm talking about verse 18. Is that the last one I read? Yeah. He preached with many other exhortations. In other words, just like that, he preached good news to the people. That's what good news sounds like. It's odd, isn't it? It's not the way that we typically talk about the good news. Especially that brood of vipers part. And John exposes their sin, their hard-heartedness, their presumptuousness. And I, I think that we can very safely assume that when John says, you brood of vipers, he doesn't say it all soft and sweet and smiley-like. It wouldn't work, would it? How is this good news? Because John preached repentance unto salvation, and he pointed to Jesus Christ. If we do not preach repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what we say, and it doesn't matter how sweetly we say it or sell it. We do not have good news for people if we do not preach repentance. We don't have good news. This message is essential for the church to preach. Of course this call to repentance is good news. Because repentance means that we stop denying the presence of the the hills of pride and the valleys of self-pity in our lives. It means that we stop defending the obstructions for salvation to come in. We stop. And what happens when we repent? God comes in and levels the way. He makes a road for His Son to come into our lives and save us and abide in our hearts. And only repentance does this. That's why John's message and all the other exhortations that he gave with what we reviewed qualifies as good news and the best news that these people had ever heard. Repentance to salvation is good news. And I am afraid that so many people have forgotten that it's good news because they think repentance and my personal happiness are mutually exclusive. They can't get together. It doesn't happen. And I think that we have forgotten that when a sinner repents, heaven goes crazy. There is more joy in heaven over one repentant sinner than gone from my head for a moment, but you get the idea. Heaven celebrates. And I think that sinners forget what kind of father awaits their repentance. It's not the father who's brooding. It's not the one who's got his back turned and his arms crossed and he's tapping his foot kind of thing with impatience. That's not the kind of father. 
He's looking to the horizon for the prodigal son to come home. And when he sees him appear, when that, when, to blend two analogies together, when that prodigal starts to confess the presence of obstructions to his father, the hills and the valleys, when he stops denying them and he stops defending them and the father can see straight through to the prodigal son, he runs. He runs to the sinner, every sinner who comes home, and he embraces that sinner. And I think if we're, if we say repentance and joy, just butt heads, they're mutually exclusive, whatever, we just don't understand. We don't get God. We don't get his glory and the pure goodness of his heart and of his love for every sinner. I want to close with this. Verses 19 and 20, it's plain that if you will be faithful to proclaim the good news of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, some people are going to hate you. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Why did he imprison John? It's not because he preached Christ. It's not because John baptized. It's because John really came down hard on Herod's toes. He stomped. He picked where Herod knew he hurt. He imprisoned John because John called him out for his unlawful divorce and remarriage to his half-brother's wife who had divorced him. We'll talk about that, I think, later, a few chapters down the road. He preached against Herod's divorce and remarriage to his brother's wife. Why did John have to go there? Why can't he just be a little more vague, you know? Like, Herod, you're a sinner too, you know. You need to repent. I think Herod could have taken that. But he got very specific. Why? Because there was no good news for Herod Antipas if there was no repentance. John the Baptist is a man to be admired. Jesus would later say he's the greatest man who has ever lived. In humility, he pointed away from himself to Jesus as the Christ. He said, I'm not it. He's it. He says in another place, not recorded in Luke, I must decrease, he must increase. In humility, he pointed away from himself to Christ. And when we preach repentance, we do not preach ourselves. We do not preach ourselves above other sinners. We do not say this is for you and not for me. We don't look down on them in scorn or contempt. In humility, we point away from ourselves to Jesus Christ, who lived for sinners and died for sinners and was raised in victory over sin and death and hell. We preach Christ. 
In humility, John preached Christ, and in great courage, he, he preached repentance. In great courage. I think today, people strongly dislike the message that Jesus is the only way to salvation, don't they? They do not like the exclusivity of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life without whom there is no salvation. But I think more than they dislike that truth, they despise the call from the church to the world to repent of sin for the forgiveness of sin. It requires courage, great courage. For it, for this message, John lost his life. Herod Antipas would later have him executed. But Jesus says, John may have lost it on this side. But in truth, he gained it. He gained his life. So, what about you? Any obstructions in your heart to Jesus coming in? Anything that you are denying right now? Any hill of pride or what have you that you're defending? Get off the hill. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Turn from it. And the promise is that God will come in he will fill the valley and he will level the mountain and he will smooth the rough places and he will make a way, a highway for Christ to come in and save and abide in our repentant hearts. Father in heaven, I pray that my heart would receive your word as good news. And I pray that everybody who has heard, maybe only heard bits and pieces of this, would get this as good news. And I pray, Father, that we would all take it to heart that if we exempt ourselves from the hard message of your word, we also dismiss ourselves we remove ourselves from the good news of your word, from your salvation. And so I pray, Father, that every single heart here would posture themselves before you in absolute repentance. And receiving your repentance, I pray that all of us, Father, would persevere to bear those good fruits that are in keeping with repentance. May our lives be lived unto you first and foremost in love. Accomplish this this in us. We cannot realize it. We cannot save ourselves. Come to our relief. Come and save us. We ask in Jesus' name, who for us lived and for us died. Amen.